this is Penny Johnson, and you're listening to From Stage to Page, an audiobook podcast devoted to the forgotten stories and memoirs of female performing artists from the late 19th and early 20th centuries. In this episode, we continue with Mura, her autobiography, written by Mura Limpany with Margot Strickland and published in 1991 by Peter Owens. Chapter 9 God Sent Me to Rasegeher Racine C'est au village de Rasegeher que j'ai appris à marcher naguère comme un enfant heureux entre la vigne et le cerisier généreux, bercé par le chant des cigales, qui charme l'onde de l'aigle opale. Dès que le jour se parle d'un soleil indiscret, pour réveiller la nature et tous ses secrets. Accompagné de moments de tristesse, mais avide de beaucoup de tendresse. J'entends encore le crépitement du feu que j'attise sur les chemins ornés de coquelicots où siffle la bise, car il faut bien des racines et j'en veux pour moi-même, persuadé d'être de ce que l'on aime pour ne pas avoir Oublié dans ma bouche le souffre de la tramontane farouche. Marcel Jourda, 1988 All my life, when I have played big works, which need a lot of strength, like the Tchaikovsky, Rachmaninoff, and Kachaturian concerti, I have tended to put the emotion into my throat, a kind of grunting not heard by the audience, of course, but resulting in a loss of voice after the performance. My voice was quite croaky at these times, and I was told I sounded very sexy, like Marlena Dietrich or Lauren Bacall. That was flattering, but nevertheless I began to worry about it, especially when I developed a cough I could not get rid of. My throat was constantly irritated, and my voice so low, at times I sounded like a man or a contralto with tonsillitis. I went to see a throat specialist, who listened patiently while I described my symptoms. I paused for breath. "'You talk too much,' he commented. "'You work too hard, you play too hard.' He meant I enjoyed myself too much. I burned the candle at both ends." He advised me to leave London and to seek a warm, dry climate in the mountain air and not to talk for a month. He assured me that then my voice would return to normal. Not talk for a whole month? It was quite a severe sentence, for I love good conversation. I went back to my house in Bruton Place, utterly bouleversé. To take his advice was not easy. I had not the slightest idea where to go, and my diary was, as usual, full of engagements, social and musical. 
There were lots of places I could go to where the weather is good most of the time, and where I could stay with congenial friends, but I realized that I could not rest properly if I were a guest. Naturally, one has to try and fit in with one's hostess's plans. Whether one stayed at home or went out, one had to talk, exactly what my specialist did not want me to do. I decided I must go somewhere where I could be quite alone. I needed a simple, small nest of my own. I picked up a book, A Farmhouse in Provence, written by a great friend of mine, an American, Mary Robley Henry. It painted in words a magical picture of rural France. I had always loved France, the mecca of good food, wine, couture. French had been the language I first learned to speak at the knee of a young French girl whose name I had long forgotten. My school days had been spent at a Belgian convent. I felt an allegiance to France and French culture. Sunday came, and I was no near making a decision. Upstairs on the second floor of my house in Bruton Place was my bedroom, and I lay in bed reading the Sunday Times. A small advertisement caught my eye. Come to the hottest, driest part of France and rent our village home while you look around for somewhere to buy. The advertisement seemed to be directed straight at me. I was intrigued and sent off for details immediately. The house was in the Roussillon region of the Pyrenees Orientales in southern France. The rent was not modest, and I was warned that the house was small and primitive. It belonged to an English couple who had bought the house and contents after the death of the owners. Nothing had been done to it. I waved all discouragement aside and, as soon as I could, shut up my house, switched on the ansiphone, instructed that no letters were to be sent on to me, and set off. I had taken the French house for two weeks. It was June, and the plain trees in London were in full young leaf, that piercing green which almost hurts one's eyes. Behind me I left the patio garden I had made opening out of my kitchen on the first floor, and this was just beginning to show geraniums in flower, as well as begonias and lilies and roses. But the air was cold and damp, and I was perpetually clearing my throat. I knew I was doing the right thing in taking the throat specialist's advice. For the last part of the journey, the train followed a spectacular route beside the sea coast and the salt flats on one side, mountains and lakes on the other, peopled by occasional fishermen, rod and line in hand. I felt the most extraordinary sensation, a real physical thrill, and I knew as I turned my head constantly from side to side so as not to miss a second of the breathtaking scenery that I was falling in love with the land there. On arrival at Perpignan, a town I did not know, I got into a taxi and asked the driver to take me to Rassiger. Did he know it? Oui, he nodded. A petit village, perdu. He put the taxi into gear and off we went. I felt very excited. The village was thirty kilometers northwest of Perpignan. On the drive I looked eagerly about me. 
we were soon away and surrounded by mountains, the road winding round and round the lower slopes and gradually climbing. The sky was a cloudless cerulean blue, and the thrilling landscape carved into a series of terraces on the mountains, patterned into regular rows with the black gnarled stumps of the pruned vines sprouting vivid green leaves. Here and there, great outcrops of red, striated rock loomed up beside the road. Red for the iron ore the soil contains, hence the name of the region, Roussillon. The nearer one gets to Rasiguer, the more beautiful it is. We passed through many villages till we came to the small town of Estagel, and then to the important landmark village of La Tour de France, with its massive stone keep dominating the surrounding valley, which once marked the border between France and Catalonia, and to the hamlet of Planese. We had been driving for half an hour, and at last the sign Rasiguer came into view, just before we rounded a hairpin bend, where before my eyes appeared a cluster of stone houses randomly roofed with old red tiles on the side of a hill above a bridge under which coursed the river Agli. The little house where I was to stay was up a narrow back street, and the interior was dark and gloomy. There was no bathroom. It was primitive, and I am very fond of my creature comforts. I was dismayed. Why on earth, I asked myself, had I left my lovely house in Mayfair for this? Is there a hotel? I asked Madame Marco, who held the key. No, she replied. Is there a restaurant? No. Is there a taxi? No. So I realized I should have to stay till the next day. That first night I went to bed in the little bedroom of the tiny rented house, lonely and lost and uncomfortable after a brief wash in the old stone sink in the downstairs room, which doubled as a kitchen and sitting room, and two aspirins washed down with duty-free whiskey for my supper. The next morning I was woken by sunbeams penetrating the chinks in the window shutters, and when I rose to open them the sun streamed in, warm and healing to my spirit and my body, exhausted from the long journey. I looked out at the red roofs and the beautiful old stone, and beyond to the vines all growing lustily in serried, undulating ranks against the dun mountain slopes. Here and there pear trees and apricots and almonds had showered their petals over the earth, and their fruits were showing strong. I quickly dressed and went out, found a little épicerie open for an hour, bought provisions, and explored further. I reveled in the scenery and the air and walked for miles among the hills, fragrant with thyme, fennel, rosemary, and lavender, down to the ravine. Not a house was to be seen anywhere in the strange stillness of the air. I heard a hoopoe, upupa epo, call and recognized a golden oriole, Oriolus, Oriolus. The clear-running river Agli, whose waters tumbling over the rocks made such lovely music to my town-dweller's ears, came from a source within the mountains, the Gorge de Cucugnan, where eagles nest. The word Agli derives from Agle, meaning eagle. 
To reach the river, one had to walk behind the large modern building, the cave cooperative. Here in the autumn, the vine growers brought their harvest of grapes to be processed and bottled into wine. I am not a good swimmer, so I was delighted to find that the river water, when I gingerly stepped over the rocks behind the cave, did not come higher than my head, so I could bathe with confidence. The river bed was littered with boulders of rose-colored marble. A flash of iridescent blue among the gray willow leaves signaled a kingfisher. The agli was bordered with tall bamboo groves, so there was complete privacy, too, and the water was clear, clean, and cool. One could fish. The villagers fished at night for eels. When one strolled out at night, from the interstices of the stone walls gleamed a mirad glowworms, and nightingales sang. The danger was that one would sunbathe too much. The villagers begged me not to go out of doors from the hours of twelve to four, when the sun was at its height, and the temperature soared into the hundreds. Sunstroke was common among the occasional tourists. Then there was a rare shower, and the freshening of the air was miraculous. Afterwards the whole population of the village emerged from the shadowed, shuttered silence of their little houses into the streets, breathing deeply the cooled air, as if in communal thanksgiving for the benison of rain. All round me were ancient houses, with walls several feet thick, a few cats and dogs roamed the streets, and sometimes even slunk through the large drain-pipes which lined them. An old church sat in the middle, and a square tower dominated the surrounding houses, all that remained of the ancient chateau of the powerful Guise family, who had been the seigneur there before the revolution. Once a day, four days a week, a bus left the village at 6.30 a.m. for the town of Estegal, ten kilometers away. All round me were the accents of the Midi, French spoken with a Spanish accent, or rather Catalan. Everybody greets everybody else in a village. Bonjour, madame. Bonjour, monsieur. The village was full of people. The first morning I met a man in the vineyards. What are you doing here? he inquired. I've had a throat infection, I said. I have had a lung removed, he responded. This is my first visit here in five years. I heard there was a vineyard for sale, and I thought I would go and look at it, I told him. Come with me, said the man, uh, Monsieur Marcel Galangot, and he took me to a small area where the vines were well advanced in growth. If you buy it, he told me, I will sell you my land which is next to it. It is a courtesy that people always give the first refusal to their neighbors. He pointed out the twenty-five almond trees on his land that he had planted five years earlier. Now they were well grown, the flowers had set, and the young almonds promised a bumper crop. I, a stranger, happening to pass through his village, looking for a vineyard, and he on his first visit for five years. I told him God had brought us together, but he replied that he did not believe in God. This was surprising, for France is a Catholic country, and throughout my many vicissitudes I have always remained staunchly Catholic. But I respect other people's philosophies, and shrugged. Well, I told Monsieur Galangot, let's call it fate. 
You must come and meet my wife, he said, and so I got into his car and he drove me to a handsome modern villa in the middle of the village, almost opposite the cave, with a pretty covered veranda in front and steps up to the front door. One of the neighbors alerted Madame Galango. Your husband's got a pretty woman in the car. Hélène Galango was most welcoming, and we got on splendidly. She sent for her daughter Marcel and son-in-law Etienne Donon. We were soon great friends. I absolutely fell in love with the village and its inhabitants. I told my new friends Marcel and Hélène Galango that I would very much like to buy a small property, even if it had only one room with a tiny garden. I think I might have something you might like, he told me. Can we go and see it? I asked. He got the key. I'll come too, said his daughter Marcel. It was a little stone building with a corrugated iron lean-to hidden away on the other side of the village. Fifty years ago sheep had been kept there. I eagerly went with him up the Rue du Centre, round the corner of the épicerie kept by Robert and Josette, then tucked away in a corner. Approached by a narrow path was a La Bergerie, the sheepfold. There were two entrances, one for the baby lambs and another for the ewes. Through one door I saw a little room with an earthen floor and a wooden ladder in the corner which led up to the loft, and through the other door I saw another room with a fire hood and a large hand-hewn stone sink. A window over it looked out on to a pocket-handkerchief patch of ground, rank with tall weeds and littered with debris, but in the middle was a pear tree. As Monsieur Galangot had used the sheepfold for the grape-pickers, it had running water and electricity. "'I'll return to London,' I told Monsieur Galangot, "'and bring back the money to buy it.' "'Would you like to sign for it?' he asked. "'I can't,' I said. "'I haven't any money.' We will go to the mayor and say we have agreed, he told me. We are willing to sell and you are willing to buy. To the mairie we went and signed a promis de vente then and there. I was asked for a deposit. I rummaged in my bag. I've got five hundred francs, I said, about fifty pounds. That's fine, said Monsieur Galangot. Here's the key. I could hardly wait to talk the whole visit over with my decorator friend Martin Thomas, who was as excited as I was at the prospect of converting the sheepfold into a holiday retreat. Would there be enough room for a baby grand piano? There must be, I declared. As soon as we could arrange it, Martin and I set off in the Mercedes, my bed tied on the roof rack for the long drive across France to take possession of my sheepfold, la bergerie, in Rassiger. The villagers had said they didn't know winters in Rassiger, but when we arrived in January it was bitterly cold, and snow was falling for the first time for seven years. La Bergerie was unheeded, and as we carried the things in from the car we wondered how we would survive. "'Ply me with the vino,' ordered Martin. "'I'll see to it all.' "'I'll sleep upstairs,' I said." and you sleep downstairs. Do you think, said Martin vehemently, I'm going to sleep downstairs? Have you seen the hole in the front door? I said to myself, 
You never know in life what's going to happen to you. Then Martin asked, Have you anything left? Six yards of yellow silk chiffon I was going to make a dress with. I'll have that. Later, he said, Come upstairs. Everything is ready. I went upstairs. Two mattresses lay on the floor, two candlesticks at the head of each bed, and over them was a draped canopy of yellow silk chiffon. Gentle white flakes descended. Do you see all the holes in the roof? asked Martin. It was snowing. So we went to bed, Martin fully dressed under his mink coat, and I fully dressed under mine. Luckily we had brought blankets. The next morning we drove out to buy heaters, thank God for electricity. Martin was in his element, planning and designing the interior and exterior of La Bergerie. He spoke French and instructed the builders and plumbers and electricians and carpenters. We were blissfully happy and creative. Martin, my mate, my copain, had an instinctive knowledge of what I would like and what would suit me. As in Bruton Place, he created an interior setting for me that was exuberantly flowery, all the colors brilliant and even clashing, and yet when put together by him, the effect was magically pretty and gay. Upstairs a small bathroom had been contrived somehow off the bedroom, and then my furniture was sent out from London. I was particularly keen to create a garden, as I wanted to eat out, sleep out, that is, rest in my hammock slung from the pear tree in the garden, my greatest relaxation and therapy in the cool of the evening, listening to the nightingales. My so-called garden consisted of a patch, twenty by thirty feet, of weeds and rubbish with a pear tree in the center. That was the view from my kitchen window. On two sides there were stone walls, and the end of the garden was fenced in by barbed wire. My first visit as owner lasted only fifteen days, but I went straight to one of the nurseries in Perpignan for some instant gardening. I bought a cherry tree, two peaches, and an apricot espalier, a blue hibiscus, three oleanders in different colors, a tamarisk, a lagostremia, a calispina, and a few rose bushes. My neighbors, the local grocers Josette and Robert, helped me to put them in. On my next visit, Robert told me he had watered my garden every evening. I said, How kind of you! Thank you! He replied that it was only natural since I was his neighbor. On my third visit, Martin, also a keen gardener, came with me. We filled the car with things for the house and plants for the garden out of my own London patio and from nurseries. So Rosa Philippas and Rosa Gigantea were put in, one to cover the stone wall on the right and the other to climb onto and hide the corrugated iron roof of the kitchen lean-to. At the side of the house I put in a white clematis montana that just took off and started covering the other side of the roof. People came from all sides of the village to admire the million stars of a plant hitherto unknown to them. I planted the climbing rose parade on one side of the pear tree and garland on the other. Everybody commiserated with me, predicting that there would be no pears with all those roses strangling them. However, 
when the pear blossom and the garland roses were out together, they all came again to admire and stood in wonder, saying it looked as if snow had covered the tree. Both roses grew rapidly, but despite their reaching to the top of the tree and cascading down, I still had an excellent crop of golden pears. On the stone wall on the right we planted mermaid, Claude Monet's favorite single rose. I so love these honey-colored saucer blooms with toothbrush stamens, then a yellow Banksian rose and Jasminum nudiflorum. We also planted a magnolia, a forsythia, a camellia, and some fuchsias from my London pots. To the left of the house a little path led to the garden, and here against the stone wall of the house I planted Albertine, Altissima, Galway Bay, and Pink Perpetuae, hoping that they too would climb on to the corrugated iron roof of the lean-to kitchen. Each year they just stopped short. I never found out whether the winds, the famous Tramontana, blowing hot from the mountains, were the cause, or whether my neighbors cut them down. Albertine developed mildew, so I took it out and put in new dawn, which did much better. I gave my neighbors roses, too, to cover the white front of their shop. In three summers, golden showers nearly climbed to their second floor. I also gave them Malaga, Danse du Feu, and Wedding Day. This last was quite a tongue-twister for Robert to pronounce. It flowed together with Clematis Macropetala, a marvellous combination. Anemones and Frisias did splendidly, and the latter's fragrance was delightful in the still dry air. Sparaxis, Tigridas, Ranunculus, Chincherinchis, and Antirinums flourished too. Rudbeckias were a striking addition, and so were lime-green Nicotianas, while busy lizzies flowered repeatedly in the shadier parts of the garden. We stuck straggly old geraniums from London all round the pear tree, and Martin covered them over generously with twigs, so they survived the winter to blazon forth the next year with renewed life. In between giving concerts in Holland, I bought masses of tulips, and when they flowered in a regimental parade of red and yellow, the Catalan national colors, everyone in the village was gratified at what seemed to be a diplomatic gesture. One day I was alone, eating my lunch in the sunny garden we had created, thinking happily how lucky I was to find such a heavenly spot to call my own, when the country chair I was ensconced in collapsed, and I fell backwards into parade and the pear tree. Two wisterias, clematis, and climbing roses were added, leading the ex-president of the cave, Monsieur Chiffre, to remark, if there is an inch of earth bare, madame will cover it. Every time I arrived at La Bergerie, I had to prune and tidy up the jungle it had become, so rapidly did everything grow. On either side of the entrance to the house I planted climbing peace in two comports, the old grape baskets, together with clematis spuneri on the left and rouge cardinal on the right. The villagers were endlessly kind to me, giving me grapes or cherries in eau de vie or recipes or advice. 
They taught me how to make roquette, a delicious frilly herbal lettuce, sprout in 24 hours in the heat by sowing the seeds and covering them with an old wet sheet, kept dampened. Another tip was to sow the seeds in a wet handkerchief dipped into a cup of water. Since the age of twelve I had spent most of my life in capital cities, Brussels, London, New York, and touring all over the world, rarely staying longer than twenty-four hours or a few days in any one place. For the last fifteen years I had been in Bruton Place, Mayfair, so it was hardly surprising that I had little knowledge of how French country people lived. My Spanish maid in London asked me, "'Why do you always live in animals' houses? "'Here it is horses, in France it is sheep.' "'For two years I spent as much time as I could at Rassigar anonymously. "'I was known simply as Langlaise. "'I don't want to leave,' I told Josette in the shop one day. "'But I must work.' "'Work?' she asked. "'What work?' "'I am a pianist,' I told her. "'Where do you play?' she demanded. All over the world, I replied. Will you play for us one day? Rassiger radically altered my view of the world. I came to know these delightfully kind and hospitable country people who worked so hard all their lives, rising at three o'clock in the summer, and should the rain not fall abundantly and at the right time, or a late frost nip the growing grapes, they would have no wine to sell and no income. They all labored in the vineyards, with secondary industries of almonds, apricots, pears, and peaches. Peaches could be bought for fifty pence a crate. I was not able to go often to Rassiger, so a year or more elapsed before I arranged for a piano to be transported there. I telephoned Josette at the épicerie. "'Has the piano arrived?' I asked. "'Yes, but it has no legs.' "'But Josette!' I exclaimed in consternation. "'They must be in a parcel.' "'No.' "'Are there any parcels you haven't opened?' I asked. "'There are cushions in one,' she said. "'Why not see what's underneath the cushions?' "'The piano legs were there.' Robert probably had never seen a piano. He screwed the legs on the piano and leaned it against a wall while he went round the village looking for some strong men to lift the instrument into position. When I next telephoned Josette, she said, Oh, yes, you can come and play the piano immediately. Now their ears were assailed for several hours in the morning and again in the late afternoon by Maura Limpany practicing on her baby grand piano in her bergerie. And as they grew to like the sounds I made, so did I learn from them the secrets of their wine-making. The Midi is the largest and oldest vineyard running from the Pyrenees to the Rhône. The Carignan, Grenache, and the Syrah are the chief varieties of grape grown there. I persuaded Herod's to stock the Rassiger wine. Sir Hugh Wantner of the Savoy sampled them and found them excellent. How much can I have? he asked me. In his autobiography, Lord Fort tells how he met Sir Hugh in Hyde Park one day, carrying a plastic bag, and asked him what it contained. "'More Limpany's wine,' Sir Hugh told Charles Fort. "'It's very good.' I bought a little vineyard of my own, bordered with figs and peach trees, 
and now I was one of the proprietaire of the cave, one of the cooperative. The villagers named one of their wines Cuvée Mora Limpani and hung my portrait in the cave. When Peter Andre, chairman of EMI and now vice president of Warner's Entertainments Associates, and his wife, Christine, great friends of mine, contemplated buying a house in Italy, I persuaded them to come to Rassiger instead, and found them a house near the church. With their young family, it proved too small and confining, so they built a handsome new villa on the high ground, commanding a magnificent view of the mountains. Much as I loved La Bergerie, it was really too small. So I bought the Andres' house and sold La Bergerie to Stanley and Sheila Moody, who promptly erected a plaque on the wall next to the door, proclaiming that Mora Limpany, C.B.E., had lived there, and gave a lovely party to celebrate. Martin Thomas again designed the interior of my new house with flowery fabrics everywhere. Opposite the kitchen he made out of a black hole of stone a small, cool green and white dining room. On the first floor was my bedroom, over the bed Van Gogh's irises, an ensuite bathroom and a balconied music room, all in shades of blue. The balcony had to be removed to allow the piano to be hoisted in and was then rebuilt. The second floor drawing room, which now ran the full length of the house, had views over the vineyards and mountains beyond at the back and the church at the front. Yellow and orange Spanish rugs covered the ancient floorboards, while lime green and white daisy-patterned sofas and chairs at one end gradually became persimmon-printed seats at the other. A wrought iron gallery and stair-rail completed the airy perspective. All hundred and fifty villagers had little or no experience of classical music. Marcel Donneau recalls the exact spot en route from Toulouse to Rassiger where I said to her, How would you like to have a music festival at Rassiger? Marcel replied, We don't have a restaurant, but your mother is a wonderful cordon bleu cook. I excitedly recruited all my friends in the music world. I contacted Victoria de Los Angeles and asked her if she would come and sing two songs. I had heard her sing on television in England. It's too far to come and sing two songs, she replied. Can't I sing ten? This was a coup since Raziguer is near the border with Spain. Perpignan was once the province of the princes of Barcelona. The villagers speak Spanish, French, and Catalan. The first festival was planned for 1981. Manchester is said to be the musical heart of England. My grandmother, Gertrude Mather, had attended the Laredo Convent School there. When I went to Manchester to play the double concerto by Malcolm Williamson, master of the Queen's Music at the Royal Northern College of Music, the orchestra was the Manchester Camerata. At the party afterwards, I talked to John Whibley, formerly cellist with the Halle Orchestra, and now full-time manager of the Manchester Camerata, the main employer of freelance musicians outside London. There were speeches, and to my surprise I was called upon to say a few words. I had no idea what I was going to say, but I stood up. "'You've all played so beautifully,' I said. 
How would you like to be my resident orchestra at Rasigare, where I'm going to start a festival? A great shout went up. Yes, they cried. The problem was, where should the concerts take place? At first we thought of the church, but it was impracticable. The long, rectangular interior of the cave cooperative reminded me of the long library at Blenheim Palace, where I had recently played at a charity recital. The cave was where the work took place, it was the heart of the village, and formed a natural auditorium. But what were the acoustics like? To our relief and delight they were excellent. The odor of wine was everywhere and the atmosphere vibrant, so we decided on the cave. The festival thus became the Festival of Music and Wine. The villagers were recruited by Marcel and her mother to cook and serve a wonderful dinner after every evening's concert to be eaten at long tables the length of the gallery upstairs at the cave. Outside the rear of the cave, villagers assembled huge braziers of salmon, the prunings of the vines on which they grilled the meats. Fragrant cheeses were served, and the salads, dressed incomparably from ancient local recipes, handed down from mother to daughter for generations. And, of course, the wine flowed. Before, during, and after the dinners, and in the intervals of the concerts, the cave shop and bar supplied a natural refreshment area where three petrol pumps poured red, rosé, and white musket for the concert-goers. A villager gave me her recipe for thyme soup, and this is how it is made. Put lots of thyme and crushed garlic into cold water, bring to the boil, and simmer for twenty minutes. Remove the thyme and add a raw egg. It is a wonderful soup and, say the villagers, disinfects the stomach. Their great specialty is the cargolade, grilled snails, the little grey ones which surface all over the village after a shower. The villagers sprinkle them with flour and then leave them for a fortnight. Now, after seasoning them with salt and pepper and ground thyme, they grill them over a brazier, glowing with burning salmon, at the same time spearing a piece of bacon fat on the end of a bamboo stick and letting the boiling fat drip on each snail. They are served with an aioli sauce and eaten with a bent nail, which is used to winkle the flesh out of the snail shell. The aioli sauce is made the traditional way with just garlic and oil, a difficult and time-consuming operation. They all are real cordon bleu cooks and were so far earlier in history than the Parisians because theirs is an ancient civilization. Another of their specialties is their orange and watermelon jam, which they also taught me to make. I make peach jam, too, and add peaches to the vin du naturel, the sweet wine from Rasiger. For desserts, they serve peaches, fluffy meringue cakes, and fruit compotes. So it was, with great éclat, at the end of June 1981, that the Festival of Music and Wine was launched. The concert-goers were quartered in the village houses together with the musicians, who received warm hospitality at very modest charges. The village was crammed to bursting point. Some of my more sophisticated friends were shocked by the Turkish luz, a hole in the floor over which they were expected to squat, doubling as a shower. 
but only recently had such modern conveniences arrived in the village. A few years earlier, all loos were buckets which the women carried up into the hills to empty into the soil round the vines. Nor did the English audiences care for rabbit on the menu. However incomparably cooked, they detected it was rabbit, and it has never been served since at the concert dinners. Two dancers from Sadler's Wells Ballet agreed to come out and dance at the festival. Marcel and I met them at the airport, and they were astounded when we drove into the village. "'Where's the opera house?' they asked. "'Where's the gala?' Their names were Marion Tate and Carl Myers. "'That's the opera house,' I said, indicating the cave cooperative. "'This is not a gala. It's a little village where we're bringing them some music.' They were dismayed when they saw the tiny stage surrounded by huge wine vats. How are we going to dance? There's no room. Can't you dance upwards? Could you make the stage bigger? Can you double the stage? Marcel asked the men. Within an hour, the stage area was doubled. What will you dance? I asked the dancers. A pas de deux. What pas de deux? Shostakovich's second concerto. Luckily, I had the music, so I could play that. What else? Chopin. Okay. Larry Adler came to see if he could help, so he played a piece the dancers could dance to. Then they mentioned a recording of Tchaikovsky's Sleeping Beauty and the Nutcracker Suite, to which they could dance. Had anyone got the record? All the record shops in Perpignan were telephoned, but to no avail. We tried the shops in Estegal without any luck. Then someone knew of someone who knew of someone, and miraculously the record appeared. The reader may well be surprised at the lack of preparation for the festival, which needs some explanation. That first year, a dancer, married to a friend of mine, had agreed to come and dance for me. I had just done a charity performance for her. However, at the very last minute she let me down. In desperation, I rang Sir John Tooley, the director at Covent Garden, and asked for his help. He then asked the director of the ballet to send me two dancers, the ones referred to above. They arrived on the morning of the performance, which is why we were still discussing programs and other details at the eleventh hour. Today, the programs are arranged well ahead of the festival, and nothing is left to chance. The following year, six dancers came and danced part of Swan Lake round Marcel's swimming pool. From bravado, I called out at the supper party, Why don't you do a few steps on the tables as they used to do in Russia? They did, and it was the coup of the soiree. True to the spirit of Raziger, the Catalan pop singer Jordi Barr took part. Dancers from the Sadler's Wells Ballet came again to dance, and every year the lovely blonde soprano Elizabeth Harwood sang. At the second festival, the dazzling French pianist Cécile Ousset played, Larry Adler came again, and the poignant appearance of the blind French pianist Bernard Dascoli, who won second prize in the Leeds Piano Competition in 1981, brought tears to many eyes. This second year, the French bank Crédit Agricole gave us generous sponsorship. 
Ted Heath came out and conducted at one concert in 1983, and in his honor the villagers created a cuvée, a companion to mine. Cuvée Edward Heath. I enjoyed tremendously the challenge of finding artistes of the highest calibre, known and unknown, who came and willingly gave their services for the sheer joy of performing at Raziger. I was very proud of my discoveries. One was the superb violinist, Peter Chaba, who had defected from his own country, Romania, and taken refuge in France. He was so outstanding a performer, with his dark intensity, good looks, and emotional playing, that he was able to establish a reputation at Lyon with his own ensemble, and became leader of the Lyon Opera Orchestra. Another was a virtuoso guitarist from Brazil of enormous sunny charm, Dagoberto Linhares. He plays exquisitely with telling hesitations which, together with his unlatin fairness and smiling grace, endear him to everybody. In 1986 there played for the first time the versatile and brilliant duettists Richard Markham and David Nettle, who literally play as one. And in 1989, to mark the 60th anniversary of my own debut on the concert platform at Harrogate, I played again at Raziger and at the Royal Festival Hall the Mendelssohn Piano Concerto in G minor. But what has really made the festival at Rassiger a continuing success has been the wonderful loyalty and support of the Manchester Camerata, who every year charter a coach for the 36-hour journey to perform at my festival. Their superb musicianship under the direction of Anthony Hose is totally dependable, which is essential when a collection of artistes assemble from all four corners of the earth for seven days, performing difficult and different works in improvised circumstances with very limited rehearsal time. They have never let me down in Rassiger, and I can never thank them enough. One of the great features of the festival has been the Saturday night cabaret, an impromptu affair following a week of serious music-making, which takes place after the last convivial dinner. In 1983, the dancers from the Sadler's Wells Ballet performed an unforgettable pas de deux in the darkened gallery above the cave, while in 1989, the Camerata's principal cellist, Basil Howitt, inspired gales of laughter as he and a colleague impersonated Dagoberto Linares and his protégé playing a duet on the same guitar. Despite her illness, Elizabeth Harwood, beloved of all who knew her, came again, accompanied by her husband, Julian Royal. She sang as beautifully as always, but one was aware of her frailty. The villagers erected a sign in the place in front of the cave, Manchester Square, and another leading to the river they named Limpany Highway. A great sadness came to us on the last day of the festival in 1990, when news arrived that Elizabeth Harwood had died, Everybody loved her, her radiance, her warmth, her generosity. "'What do you want done if you die here?' the mayor of Rassiger asked me. "'Bury me in the cemetery and plant a vine on my grave,' I replied. "'You've been listening to From Stage to Page,' 
an audiobook podcast devoted to the forgotten stories and memoirs of female performing artists from the late 19th and early 20th centuries. If you like what you hear and want to support my creative endeavors, then simply go to ko-fi.com slash Penny Johnson and you can buy me a lemonade. That's ko-fi.com slash Penny Johnson. Thanks for your support.